This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are the toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS chemicals are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. These toxins have poisoned our water, making it dangerous to drink and unfishable. And State Representative Ryan Berman is making it worse. Berman voted to cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. And the damage doesn't stop there. Just months ago, Berman sided with the big oil company that caused the largest inland oil spill in American history, voting to let them drill a pipeline under our waterways. Ryan Berman's record is toxic for Oakland County. Vote Julia Pulver for representative by November 3rd. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC. Not authorized by any candidate. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. No one else will take the job. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for the Hill in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for KX News Radio in Los Angeles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling company, or if you have any ideas or suggestions for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome to all of you who are watching me on Twitter or Periscope. Now everyone can watch the show by going to periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can also watch the show on Facebook Live at tinyurl front slash BB Facebook Live. Today on Deadline DC, we'll just preview tomorrow's presidential debate, uh, uh, Trump's tax troubles, and discuss the battle over the Supreme Court vacancy created by the tragic death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The, my guest in the first half hour is John Nichols of Nation Magazine, uh, Abdullah Fayed of the Boston Globe, and Democratic activist Mark Grimaldi join us on the provocative progressive political panel in the second half hour. Our guest in the first half hour is John Nichols the national political correspondent for the nation, home to tenacious muckracking, raking, pro pro provocative commentary, and spirited debate about politics and culture. The nation empowers readers to fight for justice and equality for all. John is also the author of the new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. John, welcome to Deadline DC. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's good to be with you, my friend. Uh, it's good to have you again. 
Uh, let's start. The big story of the day appears to be the president's taxes. Uh, what's your take on the revelations in the New York Times about the uh, president's rather sorry and sordid tax history? Well, it is sorry and sordid, and, and I think it hits on a couple of levels. First and foremost, this is a guy who presented himself as a billionaire, which it's evident he is not, uh, and also as somebody who really knew how to do business, who knew how to get on top of things and make things happen. That's been not just his own selling point, but a selling point of Republicans for generations now. Put them in charge, they'll run the country like a business. But what the tax returns reveal is that he was lousy at running a business. Most of the time he was losing tons of money and uh, kind of keeping ahead in part by gaming the tax system. And so that's number one. That undermines one of the sort of you know core underpinnings of Donald Trump's storyline. The second thing is, is a subtler reality, but one that will probably resonate more. The notion that in 2016 and 2017, he paid $750 a year in taxes. Now, I know that that's, you know, that's actually more than some rich people pay and some corporations get away with. But the, the reality is that that figure, something anybody can wrap their head around and say, well, I paid more than that to fix my car or I paid more my daughter's babysitting and she pays more taxes than that, uh, I think makes it's really powerful. And my suspicion is that unless Trump finds a, a very effective way to talk about it, uh, this is going to harm him some, not profoundly, because we're such a divided country that Trump backers will you know, go to their default of backing Trump. But I think for anybody who is even slightly wavering, this is a pretty devastating report. You know, it just seems to me that what Trump's taxes prove is not is that not only has he the worst president in American history, but he's the greatest con man in American history. Yeah. I mean, basically, he sold this myth in 2016 of him being a successful businessman, uh, where it's quite clear from his taxes that he's been a failure. Uh, he's really never accomplished anything in a businessman, but what he's good at uh, is floating loans and passing paper, and somehow that got elected him president, uh, which I think is a very sad commentary on the nation and American politics. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also it's, it's interesting that many of the um, institutions or the facilities that he made sort of central to his mythology, central to his storyline, the golf courses and, and places like that, it turns out we're losing tremendous amounts of money or, or we're at the very least not not, you know, in any way maximizing their potential. And so what we see with with Trump is someone who wasn't even interested in taking advantage of or using um, what he had. This is a guy who got a lot of money from his family, uh, who got a lot of loans, who got a lot of advantages. And, and instead of, uh, you know, kind of focusing on his job and actually doing it, he basically just wanted to live large on, on other people's money and, you know, to, to kind of keep his, his mystique going. Well, in a sense, that's a very, very good metaphor for how he served as president. He has not been interested in the basic work of being president of the United States. He likes flying over to London and you know, having dinner with the queen and things like that. In fact, I think that was his favorite part of the presidency. 
But he, I don't he think doesn't that was do a job. part of Queen Elizabeth's reign, though. No, I think it's a nightmare for her. But uh, but he just doesn't do the job. And I think that that if you juxtapose the fact that he's so lousy at being a businessman and at being president of the United States with the reality of what we've had to deal with in this country over the last you know six, eight months with the coronavirus pandemic and mass unemployment, and really then beyond that, so many other issues, racial justice, climate crisis, endless wars, um, you know, it, this is a moment late in a campaign where uh, people who are paying any kind of serious attention, or even thinking about it at all, have to pause and say, this is somebody who really isn't up to the job and in fact, does more harm than good. He did more harm than good to his own companies. And he now does more harm than good to the country. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things I uh, thought of as you were talking about Trump's taxes is it's a glaring example of how screwed up the tax structure is uh, in this country. If a man uh, like Donald Trump can get away with paying no taxes or even in a, uh, uh, you know, tops out at seven hundred and fifty dollars. Do you think this do you think this makes a difference with the kind of blue collar voters uh, that live in Wisconsin or Michigan or Western Pennsylvania? I think it can. But this is on Joe Biden. Uh, not, you know, the media, at least the Times, has brought this story out. It is a it is a blockbuster story. There's no question of that. But now the question is that how does Joe Biden talk about it? And the key is to take that $750 figure and connect it to the experience of working class people. Talk about what uh, an auto worker pays in taxes, what a steel worker pays in taxes, what a firefighter pays in taxes, what a, a clerk in a store pays in taxes. It's going to be more than what Donald Trump pays. And so you don't just criticize Trump for not paying his taxes. You juxtapose it with the reality of the taxes that people do pay. And if he's smart, now, you know, it, it seems like the Biden campaign understands they've been given a great opportunity here. Uh, if they're smart, they link it to some sort of basic proposal. Like, I'm going to give a $750 tax credit to every essential worker. You know, just Throw that number out. Now, that's actually too small a tax credit for essential workers, but it's a way of talking about it, a way of you know getting it into people's heads. If Biden does that, and if he basically presents himself as a person who wants to use tax policy to help working class people rather than the person who uses tax policy to help himself, in that case, Trump, uh, Biden's got an opening here that is, I think, significant for speaking to those workers in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and other states. Okay, our guest in this half hour is uh, John Nichols, who's the national political uh, correspondent uh, for the nation. Uh, we're going to go to break now for our radio listeners, but we'll still be on uh, 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 Periscope and Facebook Live for our video uh, listeners. Uh, so, uh, again, our guest in this half hour, it's John Nichols, Nation Magazine. Uh, John's Twitter handle is Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, Uprising, uh, if you'd like to uh, question him or comment uh, to him directly about something he said on the show uh meanwhile we're going to go to break now again for our audio listeners but we're going to
to continue our discussion with John Nichols uh, for our video listeners. So don't go anywhere or don't go anywhere far uh, because we've got a lot more to come on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon uh, for today. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Brad Bannon, my guest in this half hour is John Nichols, National Political Correspondent for Nation Magazine. We've been discussing tomorrow night's big presidential debate, uh, which is going to be hosted by Chris Wallace of Fox News. Uh, Let me ask you this question in broad term. Okay, what we have here, it seems to me, is a situation where Joe Biden is clearly leading. If you look at the national polls, his uh, lead is anywhere from seven to ten points nationally, depending upon which of the national polls uh, you uh, look at. It also seems to me that Trump is at a disadvantage in the battleground states. If you look at the six or seven states that Trump won in 2016 that are now battleground states, uh, I don't think Trump leads in any of them. Uh, I think he is either in a close race with Biden uh, in these battleground states or that Joe Biden has an advantage. Now, given that situation, what do you think Joe Biden and Donald Trump need to accomplish tomorrow night? Sure. Uh, For Biden, he needs to make it clear uh, at every turn that he's ready to be president of the United States. Remember, he is the former vice president. He's a longtime senator. But now he's asking the American people, and they, this, by the way, will be the most viewed, usually the first debate is, the most viewed uh, political moment of the 2020 campaign. So you're going to have more people looking at you than any other any other time. It's Biden's job in the period of time that he's got to present himself as, as a president, as somebody who's fully prepared to do it um, and prepared to do it in a better way than Donald Trump. Now, that means that he can't just focus on Trump. And one of the instincts or one of the inclinations in a moment like this, when you have a president who's very embattled, who has a lot of scandal around him, a lot of challenges, is to just you know, kind of keep digging into that. Biden's got to spend a substantial amount of time not paying any attention to what Trump's saying and look straight at the camera and you know, talk to the American people about what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. Now, for Trump, it's the opposite challenge in a sense. Uh, Trump is the president, and whether you like it or not, people know how he operates as president. He's got to do serious damage to Biden. He's got his, uh, unlike Biden, who's got to look away from Trump a lot, Trump's got to look at Biden pretty much all the time and spend a substantial portion of the debate in trying to trip Biden up, find the ways, find the vulnerabilities. Now, that may sound like a, a kind of a bad situation for Biden. But the fact is, this is where humor comes in. And if I was if I was Biden, I would go back and even tonight study Ronald Reagan's performances in 1980 and 1984, because Reagan was often in similar situations in 80, taking on an incumbent president who had plenty of challenges. And and Reagan knew how to, you know, trip up the attacks, trip, trip up the complaints that were aimed toward him. Famously with lines like, uh, you know, there you go again, and which was used to trip up a a Carter focus on Medicare. Um, Or in 84, 
when Reagan uh, was being really, there's a great discussion going on about Reagan's age. And Reagan comes back and says, well, I won't exploit my opponent's youth and inexperience. Those simple one-liners, you know, kind of deflected substantial portions of the attack. And so Biden's going to want to aim for, for that sort of, that sort of, you know, nuanced performance. Yeah, it seems to me that this one I think is, is Joe Biden's dilemma. It seems to me that, especially in the light of the publicity over the New York Times tax stories, Trump is going to come out hard tomorrow night and try to beat up Biden really hard, basically to distract attention from his own troubles. Right. Now, I think the dilemma uh, for Biden is to answer those charges but not get caught up so much in the negativity. Because honestly, I think one of the big things that Joe Biden has going for him is people see the reason he's ahead is people see him as a calming figure uh, who will bring Americans together and not rip them apart like Donald Trump is doing. So I think, you know, Joe Biden has to certainly respond to the crap he's going to get from Trump, but he has to do it with, you know, out being vicious or divisive, because I think that's uh, one of the biggest problems Trump has. How do you think uh, Biden can do that? Um, he did it quite well, intriguingly enough. I mean, we've had sort of a test run on this, which was the very last debate of the Democratic primaries where Biden was in a similar setting, one-on-one -on -one with Bernie Sanders and uh, no audience. And that'll be much like what we're looking at here. And, uh, and actually, in many senses, that was Biden's best debate. He was, he was act quite effective there. And, and so I think that, that he can. Now, the key here is that I, I will be able to tell you at the end of the debate immediately who won, and, because, and it won't be about anything they said, although I've talked about some what I think are key lines. It'll be on a simple question. Did Joe Biden spend more time talking about his policies and his plans, or did he spend more time responding to Trump's attacks? And, and that's, that's just a simple measure. Even if Trump attacks hard, uh, Biden cannot be distracted into that and keep coming back and saying, oh, I want to say one more thing about what the president said there, right? He's got to not get distracted, stay focused on his policies, his plans, a presentation of his own vision rather than, than playing Trump's game. And again, you need candidates. You've worked with candidates, Brad, so you know this. Candidates need to feel a sense of confidence that they've dealt with the attacks on them. And that's why smart, somewhat humorous one-liners that can kind of shut it down, uh, they work very well, not just for the public, but they actually work well with the candidate, him or herself, because they think, okay, I've dealt with that. I can go back to my main message. So if, if Biden's people are smart, they're, they're really working on those lines and working on those ways to kind of deflect away and then move back into the subject matter. Uh, one last question. Uh, do you think that uh, the uh, focus on taxes uh, will prompt uh, a call uh, for serious tax reform in this country so that wealthy people uh, are taxed, have to pay taxes just like, uh, you know, a nurse uh, in Madison, Wisconsin does? That's exactly the right question. And of course, uh, one would hope so. We need tax reform. And, and in many ways, we just need to reverse some of the the damage that was done in 2017 by Donald Trump and Paul Ryan with their with their massive tax cuts for the very wealthy. 
Um, and, and again, that's something that ought to be a big part of the debate. The Democratic platform, as well as Joe Biden's own campaign, have outlined a lot of, a lot of steps as regards tax reform and as regards tax issues. Once Biden does his mic drop moments, you know, the good one-liners, then he can pivot into talking about what he wants to do. And he ought to do that. It's, it's, that's just smart politics. Um, and we'll see if he does. But frankly, uh, if he does, then I think you might start a ball rolling toward uh, if, then if Biden wins, Democrats win the Senate, you might see some real movement on tax issues. Again, framing off what we've just learned in the last 24 hours about Donald Trump. Uh, I want to thank our guest in the first half hour, John Nichols, uh, national political correspondent for The Nation magazine. If uh, you'd like to uh, chat with uh, John, his uh, Twitter handle is Nichols Uprising, which I think is appropriate for you, John. Uh, Anyway, thanks for joining us. Uh, We'll be back after this break with our provocative progressive political panel. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Have a good show. Thanks, John. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Welcome back to Headline DC with Brad Bannon. Judge Amy Coney Barrett may replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on this high court, but she'll never replace the late justice's commitment and contributions to equal rights. Mitch McConnell apparently has the votes to install Trump's pick on the Supreme Court, but any attempt to undo Ginsburg's fight for equality will result in a political backlash that will cause endless political grief for Republicans during Barrett's tenure. Americans in general, and women in particular, will not take kindly to right-wing efforts to roll back social progress achieved since the 1960s. Democrats to use their confirmation battle to advance their fortunes in the presidential and U.S. Senate races to ultimately prevent Donald Trump from having more opportunities to make dangerous appointments to the Supreme Court. The Democrats need to make sure that the Senate battle, that the Senate battle over the nomination is as much about the president as it is about his latest nominee. Sadly, Barrett is well on her way to lifetime tenure on the court, but Democrats need to guarantee that Trump's term is limited to four years. You can read the rest of this column and my take on the presidential race in the Hill every Monday. Just Google muckrack.com front slash Brad dash Bannon. Now it's time for the provocative progressive political panel. Our guest on the panel today is Abdallah Fayoud. He's an opinion writer and editorial board member at the Boston Globe. He was previously a researcher at the Atlantic and holds a degree in economics from American University. Joining Abdallah on the panel is is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked on get-out-the-vote operations uh, of several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Mark is also active in campaign finance reform and efforts to promote cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. Uh, Welcome, panel. 
Uh, let's start with the uh, vacancy on the Supreme Court left by the tragic death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, the president uh, has nominated a very conservative jurist, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, to fulfill Justice Ginsburg to fill Justice Ginsburg uh, vacancy in the Supreme Court. Um, sadly, it looks to me that Mitch McConnell uh, has the votes to strong arm uh, the president's nominee on the Supreme Court, uh, which will give the conservatives um, a uh, strong six to three majority. And if Joe Biden's elected president, uh, the first thing that the uh, new court will do is to make the new president's life completely miserable uh, by uh, trying to uh, get rid of the Affordable Care Act, uh, maybe trying to overturn Roe versus Wade and do a lot of other nasty stuff. Abdullah, let's start with you. Uh, what's your court? Uh, what's your take on uh, the president's nominee for the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Amy Coney Barrett um, is going to, if she's uh, confirmed by the Senate, uh, dramatically shift the Supreme Court's balance, um, and she will shift it uh, extremely to the right. Um, she is very much favored by right-wing groups. Um, this puts issues like Roe v. Wade, the Affordable Care Act up into question. Um, you know, these are achievements that the Democrats do not want to see overturned. Um, and these are questions that they're going to have to ask her in her confirmation hearings to get a clearer picture of how exactly um, she would rule on those issues. Yeah. Uh, Mark, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I, I think Abdallah makes a, a really strong point. Everything we've seen from, you know, uh, her record shows that she has a neoconservative um, point of view on things that um, most are most affected by decisions the Supreme Court makes, including um, that of health care, uh, reproductive rights. Um, and the other thing I would highlight is, you know, it's one thing already to just say that the rights of 20 million Americans, uh, the healthcare rights of 20 million Americans are at risk because if the Affordable Care Act is overturned, that's how many people have gained coverage through it. But it's another thing to say that would happen during a pandemic that we've already lost 200,000 American lives. So just imagine that happening and the amount of chaos that would be unleashed by adding in the fact that you're going to have potentially uh, the word that some are using is a twindemic of pairing it with um, the, the flu season, cold and flu season with COVID-19. And you already have an increased rate of transmission and deaths. And then the other thing is a lot of healthcare companies have already declared they're going to use uh, those who have been diagnosed with COVID-19, COVID-19 would be a pre-existing condition. And guess what? The law that protects people from being discriminated against by healthcare companies uh, with pre-existing conditions is the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So if you can no longer be protected from that and COVID-19 is a pre-existing condition, then all these people who are quote-unquote lucky enough to survive this disease, and then many of them are dealing with these issues like scarring of the lung tissue and other long-term issues are then going to not be able to afford health care to take care of themselves. So if this uh, justice is confirmed, it 
will absolutely unleash hell on the American people if, in fact, the Affordable Care Act is then overturned. So um, there's an immense amount at stake here. Yeah, there is. And uh, just uh, a note for our viewers and listeners, the Supreme Court has already scheduled a hearing uh, for the on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act uh, for November 10th. Uh, you know, a week after Election Day, which is one of the reasons I suspect that Mitch McConnell is in such a hurry uh, to get the new justice confirmed uh, so she can participate in the uh, oral arguments on the constitutionality of the health care. Well, you know, let me ask you another, uh, both another question about the Supreme Court thing. You know, I hate talking about worst-case scenarios, but we're facing a very serious situation here. Let's, you know, I mean, let's say Joe Biden, you know, wins the presidential election. Um, he's certainly the front runner. I don't think his victory is a sure is by any stretch of the imagination a sure thing. But I think he is a front runner with uh, five weeks to go in this campaign. I think the Democrats have a chance to uh, win a majority in the U.S. Senate. But again, I don't think that's a dead bang certainty either. But let's say that Biden is does become president and the Democrats have a narrow majority in the Senate, uh, what would happen next year? Uh, and it probably wouldn't happen until next fall when the Supreme Court issues its decisions. Um, but would the Supreme Court dare overrule uh, and nullify Roe versus Wade and the Affordable Care Act uh, when it would cause so much devastation in American society? Uh, Abdullah? Yeah, I mean, so one thing to be clear about is that Amy Coney Barrett has not ruled as a federal judge on an issue, on a, on a case pertaining to the Affordable Care Act. So we don't actually know exactly what her... Um, her, her uh, legal record is when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, but she has made that made her opinions on the law uh, pretty public, and she has written extensively about why she disagreed with the Supreme Court on on their decision to preserve the law uh, when it was brought to them. Um, she was particularly critical of uh, the issues of birth control, um, and when it comes to Roe v. Wade, she has been. Uh, you know, anti-abortion, vocally an anti-abortion judge. Um, she has, again, not, you know, said clearly how she would rule on an issue of Roe v. Wade. So that's really hard to know. Um, you know, these are kinds of issues that we won't really know um, how somebody will rule on them until the case is brought forth to them when they're a Supreme Court justice. But her record, as Mark was saying earlier, and what she has said in the past, um, the the kinds of decisions she's written in the past, all indicate that these are very much at risk, and voters should be very keenly aware of that fact. Uh, Mark, do you think the Supreme Court, even though it's going to be a very conservative court, uh, do you think they'd risk the disruption and devastation in American society by nullifying Roe versus Wade and killing the Affordable Care Act? Absolutely. I mean, there's if you look at what the Supreme Court has done and the record of the Supreme Court, even by a five to four majority, they completely gutted campaign finance reform with um, Citizens United. You know, many people 
Uh, actually, Brad, I, I just realized we're coming up on a break here with 30 seconds. So if you want, I can give you your answer on okay, the other side. We're going to go to break now uh, for our radio listeners, but we'll still be with our listeners on Facebook Live and, uh, and Periscope TV. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back with more of the provocative progressive political panel on Deadline DC after these after this break. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. Welcome back, Deadline. Brad Bannon. We're in the middle of our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest on the panel today uh, from the Boston Globe editorial board is Abdullah Fayoud. And also joining us on the panel is progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Uh, let's uh, switch topics. Uh, we talked about this in the first half hour, uh, but since it's the big news story of the day, uh, let's uh, have the uh, panel take a shot at it. Uh, the big story today is the New York Times report on uh, Donald Trump's uh Taxes, which suggests two things. Uh, first of all, uh, that he's avoided pay- paying any, hardly any taxes over the years. Uh, and two, uh, that he has accumulated a mountain of uh, financial debt uh, that would choke a horse uh, and certainly uh, make you wonder uh, whether he can stay afloat if he's not uh, president and pumping federal money into the Trump organization coffers the way he does. Uh, so, uh, Abdullah, what's your take on the Trump tax story? I mean, yeah, it shows that Donald Trump is not nearly as successful a businessman as he says he is. Um, he, it is, uh, you know, grossly unfair that he paid in 2016 and 2017, $750 in federal income tax. That's just about the same rate as somebody making $20,000 a year. I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's worth mentioning that this is reflective of our tax system as a whole. Um, it favors the rich. Um, they get away with write-offs like this. Um, and, and Donald Trump is just taking advantage of a system that has benefited people like him for a very long time. Um, but it certainly should disqualify him from being president of the United States. The amounts of conflicts of interest that the president runs into by virtue of being in as much debt as his records show. He's in hundreds of millions of dollars worth of debt, $421 million in debt. Um, That, you know, it is undeniable that that will pose many, if not already, conflicts of interest for the president should he be reelected. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things I thought when I saw the Time story last night is it's no wonder that he's so desperate to remain president uh, because it probably the only thing that is keeping him out of debtor's prison. I guess we don't have those anymore. uh, But if anybody should go to debtor's prison, it's Donald Trump, uh, that he's in a pile of uh, financial trouble, uh, so much in debt. And my guess is, uh, you know, losing the presidential race, uh, he's probably going to face criminal charges for 
fraud, tax fraud uh, and financial fraud uh, and face the long prison sentence was uh, undoubtedly uh, why he's so desperate to remain in the White House. Uh, Mark. Uh, back in 2016, I remember our destruction, uh, our conversations back then, uh, that you were screaming uh, for Trump to release his taxes back in 2016. Uh, he never did, but the New York Times finally did it for him. Uh, so what's your take on this story? I mean, for those of us who have been following the story for quite some time, I think the idea that Trump is not as wealthy as he says he is or or not even close to as wealthy as he says he is is not a big surprise then again there's the view of looking at it for someone who's been following it a lot whether it's part of your job or you're just interested in the story um, versus those who are not as avid followers of the news or the situation it may be a big surprise to them Um, One thing that did, I guess, surprise me is how much of the money he owes, how soon it's coming due. You know, in 2022, he's got the uh, $421 million that Abdallah referenced coming due uh, to loans with Deutsche Bank. And then Forbes actually just did a report today that said, looking at his other assets and what they're valued at, he owes something more like $1.1 billion coming due uh, in 2022, depending on how you negotiate tax credits and things like that. Um, So he is on the hook for a lot of money and he's personally on the hook for a lot of money. It's not the office of the presidency, no matter, you know, how much the department of justice tries to be his personal lawyer with things like the rape case with E. Jean Carroll. Um, In this instance, He's personally financially responsible for this. So there's obviously a lot of conflicts of interest also because he he never divested from his businesses. And you see that he's still been making money off of things like trademarking, which obviously, you know, when you look at how he's got Trump Hotel set up in Washington, D.C., where just lobbyists just go there and stay there and expect access to the president. um, It's it's as clear of a, a pay for play type situation as you could imagine it's it's not that hard to figure out um the details that the times puts it in i think really does another big um thing in showing how hard it is for trump to claim fake news on this because you see the amount of documents they poured through and the amount of research that it has done and the amount of detail they go in to back up their reporting, I think that just makes it that much more credible um, for those who are just your typical American who's evaluating who to believe here. Um, And the other thing is just common sense, someone who's fighting so hard for so long to conceal their tax information, something comes out that shows that it's a very bad situation you know, common sense tells you, oh, this is why, you know, at least one of the reasons this person is trying to to hide this situation. So um, that's my take on it. And that's why I think people had a right to know because you had this fake persona of this savvy businessman built up on The Apprentice when in real life, Donald Trump's, uh, the way he ran his businesses was nothing like what was presented on reality TV, surprise, surprise, but I think if you had reporting like this back then, um, that type of image before he was allowed to take on the image as president, which gives you instant credibility, no matter what comes out of your mouth or off your fingertips, you know, in a tweet, 
he did not have that uh, type of credibility back then because he had never held any elected office. So with an election that was that close, you know, we countlessly say, oh, this would have made the difference. This would have made the difference. I think there's a great chance that that could have made the difference. So, you know, it's better late than never. Uh, okay, let's uh, try this. Uh, Abdullah, uh, it, let's say Joe Biden just get elected. Well, let me back up one step. Uh, you know, like I said in the first half hour, I think the time story shows that Donald Trump is not only the worst president in American history, and that didn't come easily for me. I'm a little older than you, the two of you, so I've always been a big fan of Richard Nixon for being the worst president, and I really had a tough time going getting over that. But now that I've moved, that I think Donald Trump is now the worst president. Uh, he is also quite clearly the biggest con, the most successful con man in American history because he bamboozled the whole nation. Uh, he was elected on this myth of him being, uh, you know, a great businessman, which is clearly a myth now based on the Times tax story. How did we get to a place, Abdullah, where we elected a con man as president of the United States? <laughs> I mean, that's a tricky question. Um, I mean, Donald Trump is, like you said, a con man. Um, he fooled people. Um, but, you know, he one thing that that shouldn't be forgotten is that Donald Trump has um, spoused, uh, you know, white supremacist ideology that resonated with people and it activated voters who otherwise weren't activated. Um, so people turned out for Donald Trump in 2016 um, because they liked what was coming out of his mouth. A lot of his early supporters and his supporters to this day do not approve of his personal behavior. Um, and a lot of them think he is a shady businessman, but they say, you know, that's worth it because he is saying what is on their minds and he's doing the things that they want to get, get done. So he's he successfully used, um, you know, black people, brown people, um, you know, other marginalized groups as scapegoats um, to get people riled up and angry and turn out to vote for him. And it's, it was successful. You know, white identity politics is very, very powerful, um, and no one knows how to use it better than Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, I suspect you're right about that, but it's also a sad commentary on our nation. Uh, so anyway, I want to thank uh, the panel uh, because that's all we have for today, friends. I want to thank the guest, our guest, John Nichols uh, of The Nation, Abdullah Fayoud from the Boston Globe editorial board, and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. I'm here Mondays uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern time. If the Lord is willing, the creek don't rise, and Trump doesn't declare martial law or designate Deadline DC as an anarchist jurisdiction. Uh, this is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay safe, and don't drink the Clorox or the Kool-Aid. I don't care what the president tells you. And make sure you're back here in the same bat channel uh, at that time next Monday, 3 o'clock Eastern, for another edition of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In the meantime, I hope all of you have a great week. Toxic chemicals have contaminated the Huron River, but Representative Ryan Berman voted to cut millions from the state's cleanup fund. Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate.
This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate.